welcome. Um, this is your first time with us here at Table Life Church. I especially want to welcome you online, in person too. Um, we're just grateful that you've chosen to be with us today and to, to celebrate and to come together to worship. And um, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, I hope to do so after the service or just send me an email at any point. Love to chat, as, as Olivia mentioned, grab some coffee, even if it's pumpkin spice season has gone. Um, and I'm sad, right? I'm into mint now, mint. I'm kind of Christmasing, right? A little behind here. But anyway, um, on another page. Um, so we are in this series, The Bible. So um, Bible is our sermon series. And we're in this fifth week of our series. Um, you may be crying next week because we're going to wrap it up next week. Um, some of you might be celebrating next week. But once again, this is not all inclusive of everything that the Bible has ever said or done or anything. This is kind of meant to be an overview. And the series has been based on this book as all of our messages are, by the way, here at Table Life Church, that we always look at scripture first as the basis for any of the messages in preaching. Um, but, but the idea here behind the series is that the Bible is a very powerful book. Maybe you've experienced that power in your own life, is the ability to transform our lives, change our perspectives, change our actions, and it also gives us hope, gives us hope and encouragement. Um, but it also has the power to do great harm. And maybe at some point in your journey, you've been harmed by someone or something that has been in Scripture. Um, and over the course of history, a lot of things in the Bible have been used to justify lots of harsh things, violence and even, even death. Um, and so for you, um, there may be an approach of like curiosity but also caution when it comes to the Bible. If you've ever tried to read it, it can be very, very hard to do, hard to understand, but I hope that over this series of kind of an overarching theme of, of giving us uh, the ability and equipping us as the church to really read the Bible and experience the reality of what God is doing through this book. So, um, but also I think it's important for us to view and even challenge um, the way that the Bible can be abused or misinterpreted in some ways or used to hurt or justify certain actions, um, even among well-meaning church people, right? So today, today we're going to ask the question, and this is printed in your worship guide. If you have that with you, if you're a note taker, feel free to do so. The question of today is, doesn't the Bible say women shouldn't preach? Doesn't the Bible say, should I just sit down right now, right? So, um, but but there's, there's a secondary question here. Um, the secondary question that we're also going to kind of address in this message is, doesn't the Bible say women should be led by men? Good question, right? Um, and maybe, maybe for you, maybe you've had this conversation, maybe even recently, um, when a friend asked you, you know, what church do you go to or something like that, and they heard that you have a female pastor, and they're like, what, how, you know, how does that happen, right? And they maybe threw some scriptures at you, that kind of thing. Well, we're going to look at today how the Bible's been used to silence women and keep women from using gifts in the church. Um, but, but to get the kind of lay of the land, um, we're going to look at what we're dealing with today. We're going to look at a few of those texts right off the bat. So these are kind of rapid fire we're going to look at some of these and, and see what they have to say. We'll unpack them in just a little bit. So if you're not familiar, so we're going to look at Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 24, which says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so our wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Okay, that's some good things right there. So let's move on to the next one. 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 12. 
A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Another famous one right there. Okay, what about 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 35? Women should remain silent in the churches. Oops, right? They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. And last but not least, from Colossians 3.18, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So we're going to come back to some of that right there, but that was just a kind of laundry list of some of the scriptures, not all inclusive, by the way, but some of those references. Um, but I, I, I want to just unpack first, though, um, some different perspectives here, because when it comes to these scriptures and their interpretation and the issue of female leadership, um, there tends to be two camps that churches and Christians overall tend to fall in. And the first, the first is this word called egalitarian, egalitarian. And, and churches that fall into this camp um, hold that while there are differences between men and women, um, they say that those differences don't impede either from being in leadership, from using leadership gifts. And they say that God calls both. God calls both men and women, and both men and women can exercise authority, serve as, female, uh, as, as pastors, they can serve on the church board, or can serve as elders in some, church, in some church traditions, that they can teach not just children, but they can teach adults too. And also that egalitarian, egalitarians also believe that in marriages, both men and women can exercise authority at different times. They can lead within the relationship, almost as teammates, you know, maybe in one area of, of life that they're one is exercising more authority than the other, but that's okay, and they balance, they balance that out. And so, of course, Table Life Church here, Table Life Church, we fall into this camp. Um, and as does the Church of the Nazarene, which is our denomination that we're associated with. And actually, what's interesting is from the earliest days of our tradition in the Church of the Nazarene, and, and even in, uh, in, in some of the other kind of branches associated with it, from our earliest days, our denomination has supported women in ministry, has had women in ministry. And then there's even those that kind of are theological cousins that in the Methodist church, the Wesleyan church, maybe you've heard of those, the Salvation Army, maybe you've heard of those, um, that, that we kind of fall in that camp, in this camp together. Um, and, and just a couple of examples going back to our roots, all the way back to the 1800s, just some pictures of these ladies. Um, first, Phoebe Palmer. So she, in the 1800s, it, think about this, all the way in the 1800s, she led this Tuesday meeting in her home, this Bible meeting, they basically blew up, and I'm not saying like blew up in a bad way, like exploded. Like so many people started attending, and, and so she had to kind of navigate that, and she wrote books. Actually, she led bishops, so in their denomination, she led bishops to experience the Holy Spirit, these male leaders of the church. She led them to experience the Holy Spirit. Once again, 1800s, like kind of crazy to believe that. Another lady who's in the middle, um, that's Amanda Smith, and she was a former slave, um, but her, she preached to both men and women, but also to blacks and to whites. It's once again, the 1800s, uh, mid to late 1800s. And, and she actually traveled to just about every continent except Antarctica to preach. And she shared the gospel with people. Um, and third, last but not least, there are others, by the way, but Mary Cagle. Um, she was part of the, one of the denominations that merged to form um, uh, the Church of the Nazarene. And she, too... She led a church with her husband, 
And so we see these, these stories again and again, going all the way back to, to roots. And, um, and it's interesting because you see these women that people are coming to faith, that there's great fruit in their stories. But on the other side of the coin, so we have the egalitarian kind of perspective, that's one camp. The other side of the coin is the complementarian. That's another version, or that's another perspective. And complementarian churches and Christians um, mean that men should lead and women should complement them. So they view men and women as created equal by God, but not equal roles in the church and often in marriage as well. And so men in these churches are called to lead. Women are called to support their leadership and serve them in whatever way is helpful. Um, and so in, in these churches, only men are pastors. Um, they, they lead in homes. They make the decisions in homes, often in workplace situations. And so they say that a man's role is to lead and a woman's role is to support or to follow that leadership. Um, and some, some denominations or churches, maybe you've heard Southern Baptist, the Presbyterian Church of America, the PCA, um, the Catholic Church tends to fall into that category. Um, and so um, those are kind of two different perspectives on the issue, two different interpretations of these scriptures. But I just want to pause here. And, 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 and just to say this, that you're not a bad person if that's part of your story. <laughs> It's not a, you're not a bad person in either of these camps, that there are well-meaning and there are very legitimate Christians that are following Jesus who hold these different views. You'd say that these kind of fall in the non-essentials category. We have the essentials Orthodox Christianity, and these are the non-essentials that we're like the, the Lord's Supper and other issues kind of fall in about interpretation, kind of those things. Not to say it's not important, but it's not necessarily essential. And, um, and I don't know if that's been a part of your story, kind of some of these camps are going to some of these churches, but um, when I was in seminary, I had the opportunity to attend a class outside of my seminary. Now, I went to a Wesleyan seminary in um, had a kind of a Wesleyan Methodist background in Washington, D.C., and so um, I had decided to attend Reformed Theological Seminary which tends to fall into the complementarian camp. And, and I actually chose to do that. I chose that not just because it was convenient, because it was a couple miles from closer to my home, but, um, but I wanted to gain perspective and be in conversation with other Christians that would lead churches that are down the street from me, but might share a different perspective on some of these things. So we have a great picture that I took of our class it's kind of fuzzy there, but that's me with our professor. And um, there was one other woman in the class. She was the wife of, of somebody, and she didn't, she didn't talk at all. So I'm like asking questions and that kind of thing. So she really took this very seriously. But, but I have to say, it was a fantastic experience. Like, like, believe it or not, it was a fantastic experience. I sat down with some of these guys at lunchtime. We had lots of great conversations. Nobody was, like, really, like, mean about anything. Or, like, we had great conversations about bringing things up. I met with the professor. Um, it was a class on Old Testament prophets. I learned so much from taking this class with my Reformed brothers and sisters, our brothers and sister. Um, but, but that's the thing. It, it's just like there's an interpretive piece here. And, and so for you, maybe for you, maybe you were, grew up in one of these camps, maybe Southern Baptist or Catholic or those types of things. And maybe at some point you read the Bible and it seemed clear on men's and women's roles. And maybe you picked up the Bible the first time or maybe you heard preached in a certain way. But then maybe something changed. Maybe you notice all around you, even in church life, there being strong women who were leading and seemed gifted for it. 
Like God had given that as a gift. Or maybe you saw women that were holding back on using some of those gifts that should have been preaching and teaching and leading. Um, or maybe you saw inconsistencies, right? Maybe you grew up in a tradition that you saw inconsistencies. That there were strange rules on how long women could teach boys in Sunday school. For some churches, it was till eight years old, and then if you were female, you couldn't teach anymore. For others, it was 18. And you're like, where's that in the Bible, right? Where's that? Who's making this choice about, okay, well, women can lead up to this point, or how old is, is the age? And you saw those, some kind of inconsistencies. Or maybe over time, you ask that question, why would God limit what God could do through someone? Why would God limit that? But the question still remains that if we take the Bible seriously, which I said all the way back in week one, we should take the Bible seriously. If we take the Bible seriously, what do we do with scriptures that seem to forbid women from leading? What do we do with them? How would we even arrive at a different conclusion than what the Bible seems to say? Well, one option, of course, is to totally dismiss and ignore everything that's in here and say, this is archaic, this is an ancient writing, doesn't apply to us today, it has nothing to do, and you kind of throw that out the window. Or you could ask the question, could there be more to the story? Could there be more to these texts and this story? And so today we're going to look at one of these in particular, one we just read, 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 35. Um, if you can just pop that up there, Becca, thank you. Um, so, so we're going to walk through basically the interpretive process. I'm sorry, where's that Hayden back there? Oh, that's Becca. There we go. Um, anyway, so we're going to walk through this interpretive process that we've been doing through the series with this scripture. And we're going to look at these five things, these five tools that have helped us interpret. And they're listed in your worship guide. We're going to walk through them. They'll also be on the screen too. But, um, and by the way, when you're interpreting a scripture, you may use these in a different order. And that's what we're going to do today. Each week, we've kind of varied the order that we've addressed the scripture in. And the first thing I want to look at is a literary style and intent. Because this is kind of framing all, the whole picture of the scripture. The first thing that's sometimes important to do, especially in a letter, we'll get to that, when we're considering a biblical text, is to consider what kind of text is it. Is it a poetry? Like the Bible has lots of poetry in it. Is it a narrative? The Bible has lots of narrative. There's genealogies. You know, you've encountered those before. There's lots of laws um, when you've reached Leviticus and your Bible reading plan stopped, right? For you, that's, you know that there's those things. But there's also letters. And depending on what type of, of writing this is, you're going to read it differently, just as you would read a newspaper different than you would a novel or a book of poetry. And so what we see is that this, this text come, is part of a letter by a guy named Paul, Apostle Paul, to a place in Corinth. It's called Corinthians because it's addressing the Corinthian church. So basically, in summary, we're reading somebody else's mail. Have you ever done that? It's illegal, by the way. <laughs> you read anybody else's mail? Well, maybe in a different level, maybe you've read somebody else's text messages at some point. You know, parents, like, you know, want to check that one, right? Maybe you've, you've read somebody else's text messages. Um, and doesn't it make things look a little bit different when you know the context, when you know why this text is being written in the first place? So, for example, let's, let's put this first example up there on the screen. Okay, this is kind of, right, scary. You get a text, I am outside. Sounds scary, you reply. Who is this? Right, right, just pause right there. 
this could be freaky. If you got one of these, especially it's like at night, right? Nighttime. But then you see the answer, Uber Eat. You forgot. You made the order, right? The takeout is at your door. It's not some stalker in the middle of the night. It's your lasagna or your burger arriving at the door. So once again, knowing the context and why this letter was being written changes our interpretation of it. So what about this one? Oh, that one. Um, so uh, I have to turn around. My eyes are going right. I, Hi, Taylor. Yes, I love birds. I feed them in the winter and put out a bird bath in the summer. This is from Grandpa. That's nice, right? Kind of random, don't you think? Especially if you would get that. But what's the context here? I sent my grandparents a card for their 51st anniversary and wrote, Happy anniversary, you lovebirds, and just got this text from my grandpa. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The context, right? Is this random grandpa? He's talking about the bird bath, right? Talking about the birds. No, no, no. It was because he misinterpreted a card, right? That's kind of bad. But, but, but just the moral of this story here is, once again, we're reading somebody else's mail, and we have to know the context of why it's being written in the first place. It makes a whole difference. You can misinterpret it very easily. Uh, and so the important thing about letters to note, whenever we, there's a letter that's in the Bible, the important thing is that while they were written for us, they were not written to us. They're written for us to read, but they originally were not written to us. You know, for us means that when we read, we can get a lot from it. We can deepen our understanding of God and of faith and, and, and our actions, but they weren't to us. It's written in a different context, addressing the challenges of a certain group of people. And dare I say, the reason why the Apostle Paul wrote all of his letters was because there were problems going on in these churches. And that was the reason why he wrote them. So the second thing we have to consider, though, kind of piggybacking off of that, is the historical or social situation. So, so once again, this is written to a church community in the city of Corinth, and the timing of this is about 53 AD or so, you know, so this is about 20 plus years after Jesus' resurrection. And so the city of Corinth, we have a little map for you, is, is located on the Isthmus. It's part of, uh, it was part of the ancient Roman transportation system. It was a port city. You had a lot of people going in and out of this. Back in the fall, we did a series called Messy Church where we unpacked a bunch of the scriptures, the, the text from this letter. And so Corinth was really the original Las Vegas, right? Everybody knows what goes on in Vegas? What goes on in Vegas? What does it do? It stays there. Yeah, this was original Sin City. Strategic location, people from everywhere, mixing pot of all these cultures, you think bringing all their stuff with them. Uh, their customs, their religions, their actions, their crazy actions and things. And we get a glimpse of this in Paul's letters, First and Second Corinthians. See, Paul, Paul had come here years before, just a couple years before, and he had started the church in Corinth. He had started it, people came to faith in Jesus, and then he gathered them up and told them that he was leaving. He was going on to the next thing. And so he left them. He left them. But then we see just a couple years after he had left them, we see that he hears that there were crazy things that were going on in the church. Like I said, the letter is meant to address that. And he had to address things like people sleeping around, getting drunk during communion. Like, come on, guys, right? And you know this, people coming together, especially in church, makes things messy. It makes things very messy. And so the purpose of his letter was due to this messiness, Paul's spending a lot of time addressing the certain messes that are going on, the things that are being complicated, 
But, and that's where we have to consider the context, the context of this specific passage. Where is this located in the Bible? So chapter 14, I don't know what your Bible says if you, if you open it up or if you go on your phone, but, but the title of mine actually says Intelligibility in Worship. That's kind of the heading that the, the um, translators gave this section. Um, this is part of the instructions on how to act in worship. Paul's addressing the crazy things that people were doing in worship. Like I said, getting drunk on the Lord's Supper. Like, who does that, right? He has to say something about that. Uh, I mean, so it's within these instructions where Paul is writing verse 34, chapter 1434. Paul is addressing a specific situation. And many scholars believe that the problem that he's addressing was this small group of young women who were interrupting the teaching, a small group of women who are interrupting their teaching time. Imagine the church in Corinth, they're gathered in somebody's living room, sitting in a circle together, sharing, and, and some of these young women are interrupting. Now, we have to realize that women had found new empowerment in the faith, that women were given equality in the faith, that they were just a balance to lead. And so the, they, they had just jumped on this, but of course, they had not received the background and education like many of the men had done, right? But so they're, they're kind of speaking, they're overzealous. And so this group, they would ask questions, things that were not relevant. They would be distracted from the worship that was going on. Oh, look, squirrel, right? So there were things that were just happening. And so it's just like if you're a teacher, right, or you have ever taught a class, it's like you say you're at the front of the classroom and you're giving an assignment and, and there's this little group of girls who are talking in the corner and you tell them, hey, ladies, can you please be quiet? That's what Paul is doing here. Just like you would do as a teacher in a classroom. Hey, ladies, can you just be silent just right now? Because we have something that we're going to take care of, right? That's something that you would say. And the reason Paul is including this because he's addressing order in worship, He's addressing all of it, from the Lord's Supper, the craziness there, to the interruptions that were taking place. And he was told that this group of women was interrupting, and, and he's telling them, so, so ladies, can you just calm down? Can you be quiet so that the teaching can continue? And can you just, like, ask your husbands later? Because once again, like, the, they're new to the faith. They just jumped into this, and they don't understand what's going on. That's kind of the context. But then the question for us, though, then comes up, right? When we consider the context, is this for all women of all time? Or was this just a specific instance? Is Paul addressing and saying, once again, for us, not to us? Is this for every woman of every single century? Or was this just meant for them on to say, no, you need to have some kind of order in worship. It would just be like if, if uh, Pastor John Spangler just started a conversation over there and started her own thing. And then something, somebody over here, you know, we have uh, Mark and Nate and they're talking over here. And I'd say, whoa, 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 guys, shh, can you cut like, oh, okay, can you do, like, you have to address it. Was that just a part of what was going on here? So that's why we have to look at the rest of the Bible. Let's look at the rest of the Bible. A tool, important tool is to look at the other scriptures. How does Paul or others interpret uh, or approach the issue of women leading. So in the same book, in the same book, a little bit earlier, in chapter 11 in 1 Corinthians, we hear this. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. 
So just to give you guys a heads up, later this afternoon, we're going to have a class on proper head coverings, okay? So just, just to let you know of that. But, but, but so we look at this. So, so Paul, by the way, he also addresses the men too. The men don't get off the hook here. So Paul is addressing a cultural norm that was taking place. But what is he assuming here? Women are praying and prophesying aloud. That was no part of the normal thing. That was not the thing he was saying, stop that or whatever. He's saying, no, it's how you do it. There's a proper, you know, cover the head, and this is what we should do. Um, we see that being, that there's a way to do it, a way not to do it appropriately. Women are praying and prophesying in the midst of the church meeting. And that's not only the only example that we see, because Paul goes on in his letter to the Roman church, to the Romans, to talk about other women leading. So in chapter 16, he lists a bunch of them. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon leader, deacon of the church in Centurae. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. This is Paul speaking. He says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Jesus Christ. So first, Phoebe Phoebe, we're told that Phoebe, she's actually the messenger, the one who delivers the letter to the Romans, to the Roman church. She delivers them. And it's assumed that probably she was the one, she probably was literate, which is like an amazing thing for the time. She probably spoke it, was the first one to teach out of it. And he calls her a deacon, you know, an elevated position in the church, one of service. And even Paul, in other places, he calls himself a deacon, a servant. He's, he's equalizing here. Then we see Priscilla which was, this is really weird too. Priscilla's mentioned before her husband. Very strange in the culture. Why would she be doing that? Well, she's mentioned first, which denotes leadership in the church in some way. That maybe she was the one that led the church and her husband supported her in that way. Um, and, and later we see her listed as, as teaching in, to this guy named Apollos. Like, what's that? Women teaching men, how is that supposed? Like, Apollos comes to faith through that. But then this, the story goes on. So verses 6 to 7, greet Mary, another lady. What's with that, right? Who worked very hard for you. Greet Adronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They're outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Interesting. So Mary, and then we have this lady, Junia. So Paul Hulls, or what does he say about her? She's an outstanding apostle. Crazy. Like he elevates her as well. Uh, interesting story here. If you go on to some translations in, that were translated about the medieval times, we see that the medieval people, of course, when the Roman church had arose, I'm not going to give you the whole history on that, but they edited her name and changed it to Junius. There's certain translations, they edited it out, taking the earliest manuscripts we have, says Junia. And other scriptures in Acts, we see this woman named Lydia, who's a, in the marketplace is the head of her household because then her whole household gets baptized when she does. She becomes the first church planter in Europe. See, Paul tells us that women were teaching and leading in the early church. And we see other historical documents outside the Bible that say the same thing. See, uh, there's another scripture, too, that sometimes we wrestle with this. Well, you know, what is the role, too, within the context of our relationships? Well, Colossians 3, 18 to 19, of course, says, Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Well, something we have to realize that in the first century, men had all the authority and leadership over their wives. 
especially in the culture, that men, believe it or not, could abuse their wives legally. They were known as property. Love and care were not things that husbands were to offer their wives, at least be told to. So Paul, what he's doing here, he's actually elevating women's status in this context. But there's some common sense that goes on here too. We can't let Paul completely off the hook either. We have to use our brains, right? We can't let Paul off the hook because he's still saying, well, operate, this is a Roman cultural patriarchal culture. Paul himself is rooted in patriarchal society. Other things he says in other places in the Bible, you know this, he says, include slaves, submit to your masters. Like, what's with that, Paul? Well, Paul knows that God's kingdom is different. And, And so on one hand, he pushes against Roman institutional power, but he doesn't want to cause so much upheaval that the whole thing falls apart. It's a delicate balance, the changes in the wider culture and society that he is pointing to. But Paul, Paul is still abiding by the power structures of the Roman Empire. But the thing is that even in spite of that, Paul shows that women still were leading in the early church. But I don't think it's important to look at just Paul, right? We can see things, once again, he's embedded within his culture and his experience. Or some things he even says, he says, this is my opinion. Be aware of those passages as well. He offers his opinion, which, once again, may or may not count as much as equal authority to other things. But it's not just Paul. More importantly, it's Jesus, too. It's Jesus, too. In the first century, for, for rabbis, it was against the cultural norm for women to even be taught. Women could not be disciples of a rabbi. There was a Jewish saying that said, better to burn the Torah than to teach it to a woman. There was a saying, that's what they told people. But the thing is, when you read the Gospels, you see Jesus going against this. The Samaritan woman winds up being sent from Jesus and is the first messenger and the bearer of the Gospel to her town. We see so many other people. We see women who supported Jesus financially during the Lent series. We talked more about that. We see Mary and Martha, right? Always like scold you know, Mary for not doing the work that Martha's doing at that time. But Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, which was totally unallowed and countercultural at Jesus. What does he say? Let her stay there. Let her stay there. He's empowering that. And we also see the first person to meet the resurrected Jesus is female. The first people to go and visit the empty tomb. The first to teach the disciples about the resurrection of Jesus. See, Jesus himself elevated the role of women and challenged the cultural norms of his day. Even Mary Magdalene is known in the early church as the apostle to the apostles, the first messenger of the gospel. But just wrapping all this up, though, of course, this is not a comprehensive study of all these passages. Like, you know, we would be here a couple more hours if that would take place. But what does this mean for us? What, what conclusions should we draw from this? What, what, what does this have to do with us? Well, I think it's important to realize that given the context, Jesus and Paul were on the cutting edge of elevating women back to God's intent. See, we see last week we approached the scripture in Genesis about the creation. Well, there's also this part about the creation of humanity, of human beings in, the, in that story, where men and women were created side by side to work and worship together. 
Um, there's this little word, you know, that's, that's trans- easer, which is translated helper. It's the same word that's used for the Holy Spirit, by the way. So and there's no ranking there among Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But that men and women were created to be counterparts, to be partners. But you know what broke that? The fall. The fall, the elevated position of hierarchical position. See, Paul and Jesus are going back to God's intent, ushering the new reality, the new kingdom that had started and empowering those who had been marginalized. So if we follow Jesus' example, it needs to impact how we treat people, especially women. If we believe that the kingdom creates a new reality, we have to live like it, both in church and in our lives outside, that outside our worship gatherings, that we are the church. And so some of us may think that we're past this. You know, Pastor Chris, like, you know, we're past this, like, in our church and culturally. But that's just not the case. See, we all know that men can say things and women can't. And in many ways, women are seen as people that are just there to help men. And as people of faith, we're called to challenge those assumptions and structures and how we raise our kids, how we show up at work. God calls the whole church to use our gifts. The whole church, not half the church, the whole church to use our gifts. I mean, do we compliment guys on doing a good job and hard work and we just tell the women that they look pretty? Do we challenge inappropriate comments or actions or do we ignore it? Or do we even join in it? Do we re- react when we see a stay-at-home dad who, then, who has his wife as the supporter of the family? And do we joke and say, well, she wears the pants in the family? Do we shrug off pornography? Saying, oh, well, that's just what people do, right? We see that it leads to abuse, objectifies somebody's daughter or sister or mother. And even as Pastor Kelly, our missionary, shared, has trickle-down effects overseas to sex tourism. At a meeting, do we assume that a woman will be the one who takes all the notes? What work are we doing to show the kingdom? Because Jesus restores us to being partners and to live into our gifts. And we challenge sexism not because of any political agenda, but we challenge it because of Scripture and the people that we are called to be. And because of that, we're called even more fully to usher in the kingdom of God. So when you come across these Scriptures... When you talk to a family member or a friend that kind of bucks up against and says, well, women shouldn't preach, know that it's much more to the story than that. Because we have an opportunity here, folks, friends. We have an opportunity to demonstrate God's intent and how Jesus restores it with us. To use our gifts, male or female, for preaching, for building, for baking, for leading, and that includes the whole church to be a part of the changing attitudes and actions to against what oppresses and thus become a part of ushering in the kingdom of God. And it's my prayer as your pastor that we would be a church that lives that out in our own lives and does so as a witness to the world around us. What an amazing thing that that would be. So I challenge you today, what does that look like for you? What does it look like to embody that? Maybe to live into a gift that you've been pushing back because you're like, I'm not sure, like, uh, like I'm, I'm, I'm a girl. Like, you know, we have some daughters here. Like, I'm, I'm glad that I've never, never had a woman preach before I was uh, in my 20s, actually. You know, to, give it, to be an example, to be a support, to show that, to say, yes, you can. Live into that. 
you know, or a guy like, hey, we had some gentlemen that were helping with the kids with baking through the Bible. Isn't that an amazing thing, right? Like there's children's ministry. We have several gentlemen that are serving. Like what is that way? What is God calling you to use your gifts and to use that to be a part of what he's doing here to build his kingdom? So let's go to the Lord in prayer.